This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Good to see you this morning. Hey, we've got a very special day uh, ahead of us here. Of course, uh, you know, this being Memorial Day weekend, we want to take some time to uh, uh, talk about that and pray about that. Also, it is Pentecost Sunday, and, you know, one of the significant things about Pentecost Sunday is not just simply that it is the day that the Spirit fell on the people of God, but also remember that it was the day in which the, the Holy Spirit was empowering the church to take the gospel to the nations. I think it would be very fitting in what we're going to talk about today as we look at uh, John's gospel. It's also Memorial Day weekend, and you know, as a country in the United States, uh, it's a day that we've set aside to honor those uh, who have given their lives in the service of our country, specifically, you know, thinking in terms of the military, but also in, in other capacities as well. And uh, we want to take just a moment here. Let's, you know, pray for those who have given their lives in defense of our nation. It's not just uh, the, the first weekend of summer or barbecue weekend. It actually has much more significance than that. So let's, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, we see that uh, there are many ways in which uh, you have uh, brought blessings to our land. And uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the freedom that we have uh, in this land to worship you. It's our hope that uh, bef before someday comes that we might lose that, that we would our arts, our hearts and our eyes would be open to the great privilege and honor that we have and that we would use that to bring glory and honor to you in the things that we say and do, um, that we would uh, use that as an opportunity to share the good news and to um, be salt and light to our neighbors. But Lord, we, uh, as we are stopping to remember these great privileges and the, the we ask, Father, that you would be with those families um, who've lost loved ones in the service of this country, specifically in the defense of freedom here and in other places. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we pray that uh, you would be with those families and you would comfort them today, uh, that, uh, that they would know that we have not forgotten the sacrifice that they have paid, not only the sacrifice of their loved one who gave their life, but their sacrifice. And uh, allowing their loved ones to uh, go and to defend those freedoms, allowing their loved ones to uh, go and serve. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would be with them and comfort them, and that we pray that for us uh, as a people, especially those of us in the church, uh, recognizing that how great a freedom that we truly have, and that uh, we would not only uh, honor those who serve in such a way, but continue to pray for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to another installment in our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, I say this every week, and I, I hope I don't bore you with it, but, you know, one of the primary themes, as you saw in the opening of the video, is that of eternal life. And so, you know, constantly the thing we want to hold up is we're looking at each chapter as uh, we look at pieces of the puzzle 
uh, is that how central this theme of eternal life is to the whole of the gospel, how it works its way through uh, every event as it unfolds, and that John wants us to understand that life is not uh, just simply uh, in the form of existence, but there is a greater sense in which life uh, is meant to be lived to the fullest, that God, uh, through Jesus, has brought to us uh, this abundant life, this eternal life, this expectation that life can be filled with the presence of God, that it can be transcendent even as it is imminent. As we, you and I live in this world and we uh, go through this you know, physical life, this biological life, that the presence of the kingdom that of eternal life could be working in us and through us to our neighbors, making us a city on a hill. And you know, the thing is about a city on a hill, if you think about it in the truest sense of that, is that you, you don't hide a city on a hill. It doesn't get shown on occasion. Like if you are traveling across country and you see, you know, as you're approaching a city, you begin to notice maybe the clouds are kind of lit up and you think, why, do the, why are the clouds lit up? And you realize before long, you're approaching a city. You you don't just you know, try to uh, ignore that or whatever. It's not because it's uh, pushed in your face. It's not because it's rude. It's not because it's unkind or whatever. You just can't help but see the light shine. And so the expectation is in our lives is that when we truly and authentically live this abundant life, when we live this eternal life, that it can't help but shine from us. There's no way to hide it unless to just simply deny it and walk away from it. Uh, there is no need to like shove it down someone's throat because the evidence should be completely available to anyone who gets in the presence of a city on a hill is that their light radiates and all they say, all they do, that the expectation is, is that there is no way that somebody comes into contact with you and they don't know that you have the light. Well, today we are looking at the Samaritan woman at the well and the witness surrounding, you know, of, of, to the surrounding community that she gives. Now, this chapter opens with an explanation about Jesus leaving a populous area where his disciples were baptizing uh, in accordance with, the, with John's baptism. And we talked a little bit last week about how it's seeming, you know, that uh, that this, there's this conflict that's brewing, not because of Jesus and his disciples, not because of John and his disciples, but others trying to pit them against one another. And so it opens with this kind of seemingly that Jesus is surrendering that area uh, more south uh, to John the Baptist and his disciples. I would assume that part of that is just to end the controversy that sought to divide John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. But then we see that also Jesus leaves in a great hurry to reach Galilee. And as the Baptist disciples you know, leave that Samaritan territory, it's like they're passing each other. I don't know if they you know, connected somewhere along the way and, and had lunch or whatever, maybe to mend the fences. That, you know, it doesn't tell us, but uh, uh, Jesus and company... Uh, are headed north, they're coming south, uh, and then Jesus decides to do something that his disciples are perplexed about, is that instead of going the traditional route that most Jews would have taken to avoid Samaritan territory, he goes intentionally through 
the Samaritan tor- territory, and the explanation given is that it's an expedient, that they need to hurry up and get to Galilee as if something needs to be accomplished, which of course then sets us up for Jesus at Jacob's well in communication with a woman, and specifically a woman of questionable reputation in what appears to be a compromising position to those who were looking from outside. And so with that in mind, let's get to our text, John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a phone or tablet, would you please set that to silent for the sake of those around you? I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along in whatever translation you have, the one in your lap, always my favorite. Let's take a look. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out from town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, don't, you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the reaper and the sower may rejoice together. For here today the, the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, and others have labored and you have entered into their labor." And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, as I've mentioned uh, previously in this series, one of the things about this biography of John uh, that is unique uh, is that there are these very individualized stories that are not contained in any of the other Gospels. Um, that really set it apart. They're, they're conversations that are happening between Jesus and one other person, uh, and they're fairly significant because they not only give you insight into the, you know, Jesus' heart for the people, but also it, it tells us a great deal about the heart of God for uh, the people, especially for the nations. And um, so these biographies, uh, or in this biography, these seven stories are not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first one of those conversations was Nicodemus that we looked at and, um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that out of those seven stories, it is the only one where we have Jesus engaging with the re religious elite. And when I say that, when I say the religious elite, what I mean by that is that he's a religious leader, right? He is a member of the Sanhedrin, he is a Pharisee, he is a teacher of teachers. Um, he is, uh, you know, uh, heralded as a great leader and, a, uh, you know, an authority, a religious authority. Uh, the rest of these conversations all encounter, you know, encounter individuals, and many of them uh, Gentiles or of mixed background or something like that. Uh, by far, in a way, the majority of those stories, we're talking six to one, right? Uh, are encountering someone either in a compromised situation or they're a Gentile or they belong to some doctrinally, you know, impure group or whatever. There's always something that stands out. He's the only one that was uh, a religious leader. And, and a couple of things that stand out about that when you think in contrast of these two situations uh, is that not only is he the, you know, uh, the, the only one that is of the religious elite, throughout, those, uh, you know, throughout the Gospels, 
he is the only religious leader that has enough humility to come to Jesus. He's the only one. Which I think is like, it says a whole lot in itself that how, that sometimes, you know, in terms of when we think we already have everything all figured out, that, that there lacks then the humility to be taught, right? And so, I, you know, it's one of the things I think always, even in terms of discipling relationships, you know, is, is I'm teaching uh, other people that are, you know, first coming to Christ, or even maybe they've been with, walking with Christ for a while, but they want to grow in a particular area, and we enter into a relationship. One of the things that I think is always significant to me is that I always learn a whole lot from every person I've discipled. I mean, I'm just always amazed at how that they will see something, or even I'll just I'll be teaching them about something, and they'll make some comment, and I'll go, what? Say that again? And, and like, it's like I'm hearing it for the very first time, and it is just like the sweetest thing that like as long as you and I are walking with Jesus, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to like, you know, throw anybody here for a loop, but if, if you are at all familiar with the idea of mathematical limits, and as you approach your point that you can double your, you know, each time and it gets as you get but you can never reach your final destination you get a little closer a little closer even as you double it it just doesn't you never get there because there's always half the distance always half the distance and i I think of that like you know how that's just kind of a, a model for like as you and i walk with jesus like you know initially when i was first started walking with jesus like everybody knew right away, right? I mean, like all of my friends, you know, knew that something had significantly changed in my life. Most of them didn't really like it, but, you know, I, I, I'm, you know they knew right away, right? Because my, my, my attitude toward life changed, uh, my language changed um, really significantly. And, uh, and so uh, all these, these changes were fairly significant and, and they looked huge, Right? But here's the thing is that the longer I walk with Jesus, even when I make great strides in my relationship with Jesus and I grow in some area of my life, it just doesn't look as significant now, even though it may be equally significant to me uh, in terms of my experience and all. And, and one of the things that we, just, we gain all the time when we're discipling people, when we're in relationship with people, uh, is that we should be t- continually not only growing in our own sense uh, of our relationship with Him, um, but that the ability to learn from others. And you just see that lack of humility across the board with the Pharisees and all. They, 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 know, they know everything. And, and I would say to you, in any time in your relationship, if you ever find yourself in the place where you know it all, like, be afraid. Right? That's the time to just really get on your face before the Lord and humble yourself and ask Him to help you with that. I'm, you know, and then like make real strides toward shaking that pride. Because the other side of it is, here's the thing you don't see in the New Testament. There's a reason for it. Have you ever noticed there's no prayer? Oh God, make me more humble. Do you know why? Two reasons. One, nobody wants to be. (laughs) And second, like every time God humbles someone, it's called humiliation. 
right? So we choose to humble ourselves. We don't ask God to humble us. He will. I mean, if you, I mean, if you want to ask that, I mean, but let me just recommend that the place that you and I want to go to is we want to come before the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I recognize that I am lacking in humility in this area or unable to receive from certain persons or, uh, you know, or whatever else, and then intentionally work on that. I think it's just really important for you and I to allow humility to have its good place in us where we're able to learn from literally from everyone. That one's for free. Well, as we can, like I said, as we go into this, uh, these two encounters, Nicodemus is the only one, you know, like I said. Um, another thing about Nicodemus is not only is he the religious elite, uh, but you know, we have him coming to Jesus. In these other six encounters, the thing that you'll notice is that Jesus is coming to them. So we have the only time that somebody has to come to Jesus is the religious, religious elite. All the other times, Jesus is going after them, those who are afar off. Jesus is pursuing them. The religious elite, the one and only, has to come. And, and how does he come? He comes under the secrecy of night. Because even though he has the humility to recognize that God's at work, he still lacks the humility to be able to deal with all the consequences of his decisions and, and so forth. Uh, he, will, he has this significant conversation with Jesus, and yet it's not until the end of the gospel that we see Nicodemus re-enter into the discussion and we discover that he, along the way, has become a follower and a disciple of Jesus. We know from church history he was a significant follower of Jesus along the way, but not significantly during the life of Jesus. We'll talk about that more later. Another thing that we have uh, happen in terms of con, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, contrast between these things. Nicodemus, of course, is identified by name. He's a player, right? You know, uh, he's a significant character in Israel. Um, and uh, all the other encounters that are equally as powerful, equally as unique and individual, we never know their names. I, I don't know that it would make a difference if you and I knew the Samaritan woman's name. I mean... I don't, maybe we might, you know, be tempted to like, you know, name one of our kids after her or something. I don't know. I don't, you know, that's kind of a convoluted thing, right? You know, like, do you want to name your kid after the Samaritan woman at the well? You know, I, I you know. Uh, she has no name. And it's well communicated in the social hints that she's a nobody of no consequence in her social standing, possibly even an outcast, right? She has gone to the well late in the day. Now, it could be simply that she was out of water, that she didn't plan well or whatever else, but the fact that we are told then that she has had five husbands, the likelihood she has chosen to go to the well late in the day because she's trying to avoid all the little idle gossip and chatter. She's trying to avoid the, the, the despair 
you know, dispurging looks uh, from her neighbors and things. It's a significant difference out there. And so she's gone in the heat of the day uh, and uh, seems to be that she's intentionally avoided going out there with everyone else. Jesus is intentional to go through this territory and he's in a hurry, but suddenly everything slows down and everything changes through this encounter in which he will remain there and do some teaching because what we're finding out is that the reason Jesus was in such a hurry was to meet her. Keep in mind also that like, it, it, it's strange to us in this day and age, but that for a religious teacher to be alone with a woman was not permissible. So like, let's say you attend a synagogue and you want to go see the rabbi to talk to the rabbi, you have to have an escort, preferably a male escort. So if you want to talk about certain things, like you're going to talk about those things in front of one of your male relatives who will bring you. It can't just be any guy. That's, that's the reality of, of, of her world in which she's in. Um, the, you know, when you read about people like Lydia and stuff like that who are independent women, like you've got to recognize they're the, they're the outliers in their society by a long shot. Most of the women in that day couldn't have even approached a rabbi and talked to them. Um, if you ever, maybe you've seen um, the play or the movie Fiddler on the Roof, and there's a whole part where they start to dance with the rabbi, and they're making the point that, you know, it doesn't forbid that, and then they go to dance with the rabbi, and then he pulls out a hanky and lets her hold the hanky so that they don't touch, because for him, he is so afraid of looking like he's being impure that he's up to something no good. Uh, it was viewed in their society for a man to be talking to a woman that wasn't his wife like he was on the make. And so for Jesus, a single man and a rabbi to be at that well talking to a woman who seemed to be of blatantly obvious disrepute, everybody's going, what's pastor doing? Right? I mean, nobody's saying it. They're kind of murmuring among themselves, and it says, but nobody, what, dared to ask him. So they're kind of like doing this thing of like, you know, the Christian celebrity thing. You know, do we say something? Do we not say something? I mean, he's really, you know, got a powerful anointing, obviously, and we think he's the Messiah, but what's going on here? But nobody has the guts, right? But not only does nobody have the guts, but there's also this other part. Like they want to believe the best about him, and, and then they watch as all of this unfolds and they come to know the truth of the matter. But he's standing there and he's talking to a woman and a woman of disrepute and one who's of questionable lineage, right? Because understand, what's the story about Nicodemus? He is of the perfect pedigree. 
That's why Jesus says to them this whole thing about, you know, and the only way that you will see the kingdom of God is that you are born again. And deeply embedded in the, in the Israeli, Hebrew, Jewish psyche is this idea that my nationality, my heritage is so deeply intertwined with my faith that they're inseparable in their minds. We talked about that a little bit when we were looking at Nicodemus. But when Jesus says to him, you need to be born again, uh, he's not just simply, it's not, don't think of it like in church language, think of it in terms of how he heard it. Your nationality, your ethnic heritage, all of the things that you've understood about being a Jew, that's no good here. That's not what will save you. And so there's this whole disorienting thing, right, where he's got to turn and embrace Jesus and not trust in his bios life, not trust in the things of this life, but he's got to trust in eternal life. He has to trust the Messiah to save him. And it's so disorienting. It's like being born for the first time. You, 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 come, you, you will be living in this bios, in this sphere of life and, and everything else, and yet you're going to be an entirely different kind of person, an entirely different kind of creature. Everything about it is completely just turns it upside down. She's a Samaritan. If you don't know who the Samaritans are, the Samaritans are the descendants of northern Israel. Samaria was their capital when they split from Judah. And the northern kingdoms, when they were carried off uh, with fish hooks through their nose into Syria, a few stragglers were left behind and they intermarried with other peoples and races. And so they ended up with this kind of syncretistic you know, version of, of the temple and of worship and everything. So they worshiped on the mountain. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They only had the Torah. They ignored all the prophets. They ignored all the wisdom literature, Job and, and you know, all those. But like they ignored everything else except the first five books. And then they had brought in practices from the surrounding religions, from the Canaanites, the Philistines, and things like that, and, and, and brought it all into their worship so that they ended up with this kind of hodgepodge faith. So she's mixed in her birth. Please don't think of like societally, you know, people, you know, in this country. We're talking... About, a, 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 about an issue of, remember, Nicodemus was a Jew and he was trusting in his heritage. And the point here is that she's not of that heritage. She has no claim to that. That's what's making it so significantly different. Now, you and I could extrapolate some other things, but I'd just be really careful going too far and making it into a, you know, kind of a, a, a social justice issue at that moment. I don't think that that's completely wrong. I'm just simply saying that in the discussion here, just let's leave it right there. So the reality is, she's in complete contrast to Nicodemus. 
He's a man of the religious, religious elite, and he is named by name. She is a nobody from nowhere, right? She's from Sakaar. Uh, you know, if I, uh, I should have put the map up, and maybe I'll do that between services. <laughs> um, but where she's going out to Jacob's well, there's nothing out there. It's a long walk to the city, about a half-day walk. It's a long walk to the city to go get the water. Why they built the city somewhere else, I just can't imagine. You know, you just don't go anywhere near the well. That seems foolish. But nonetheless, she's a nobody from nowhere. She has no pedigree. She has no social standing. There's nothing about her that says, gee, you know, we ought to go after her, right? Everybody, if you think about it, like in, in kind of today's celebrity culture of Christianity, wow, we need to win a Nicodemus so he can stand up on the stage and tell everybody how he's converted to Jesus. We need a rap star. We need a rock star. We need somebody to share the gospel. We need Kanye West to validate Jesus. Are we serious? Unfortunately, yeah, we are. Actually, <laughs> read an interesting article. It's probably really surprising to Christians, but did you know that over 80% of those surveyed that were not Christians said that one of the most offensive things is that when Christians try to point out what celebrities love Jesus, that that is like the thing that discredits us most? Think about that. Over 80% of non-Christians, when Christians point to a celebrity being a Christian, they don't consider that a win. They think that you're selling out the gospel. They can see through it. It's just apparently we can't. Hello? You don't need superstars to get the world saved. That's not how this thing works. That one's for free, too. But when Nicodemus leaves, he leaves by night. And we don't hear about him till the end. Whereas the woman, what does she do? She runs into her city like she goes and she travels all the way back to Sakaar and declares, look, I've met this person and he's told me everything. He's a prophet. And you know what? He's the Messiah. He's more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. And, and she's like raving about him. And she brings her whole city. He's a man giving him every social advantage, privilege, and credibility of the ruling Sanhedrin. She's a woman already in low station, part of a mixed race, part of a sect best known as for heretical and syncretistic ideas. She's a woman of questionable virtue, and yet she's the one who bears witness and brings many to Jesus. Now, just for a little side note here, some interesting things, you know, tie in some biblical passages for you from around the uh, Old Testament. Do you know how many stories there are in the Bible that are engaged with a woman at a well in the middle of the day? It's a really significant theme. 
constantly upending what the religious world thinks. I mean, we start with Rebecca, who met Abraham's servant at the well in the middle of the day in Genesis chapter 24, and then agreed to go back with him and be Isaac's wife. What's she doing there in the middle of the day? Well, she's there, you know, watering things, you know, and he's helping her out. And, and he, you know, there's this whole discussion around the well and about being deep. And then he helps her out, right? And, and so there's, you know, this whole conversation. And, and so then Rebecca is introduced into the conversation and this long story. And, and, and it's, you know, as you look at that whole story, it, it, there's lots of questionable things going on in that situation. But God uses it to bring forth a, a nation. Or there's Jacob. Jacob, you know, who ends up at the well and there's just, you know, and meets his wife Rachel at the well in the middle of the day and he helps her draw water because the well is deep and he not only gives her water but, you know, feeds her animals and then she gives him her heart. Genesis 29. Again, we have there in Exodus chapter 2, Moses, he runs away from Pharaoh and from the Israelites. Uh, you know, everybody's accusing him. He runs away into the desert. Uh, he thinks his life is over. And there at the well, he meets these daughters. One of them happens to be Zipporah. At the well, in the middle of the day, and, you know, there's all kinds of questionable things in this whole process. And, and uh, she, her father, is priest of Midian. Well, if you know anything about the Midianites, you know that they were very much in, like the Samaritans of the descendants of Ishmael, and they had this way of like worshiping Yahweh, but then kind of being very syncretistic and mixing other things in their faith. And there, as he rescued her from the mean-spirited shepherds who were harassing them and everything, and he got her flock water, and then dad invites him back and brings him into a fellowship meal. And, you know, but there's this whole sense in which all these women were significant in the lineage of Israel, right? And all of them were of mixed race and questionable religious background. It's almost like John's trying to tell us something. Almost. I mean, you know, like, we, we might kind of get this thought from reading John's gospel that it's not the religious elite or the, the celebrity or the person who was best known or anything else, but it's people like the Samaritan woman who find themselves broken, but they're open to the, what God is doing in their world, in their life. Uh, they have these encounters, and when they have the encounter, it radically changes their life, and they upend their life. They leave their country, and they go to another place. And they, they leave all that they've known in order to be married uh, to the one who can bring hope and life. Uh, Zipporah, uh, you know, she, like she leaves everything, right? I mean, you know, Rebecca, they leave everything. And, and what does the Samaritan woman do? Like she is like giving her heart to Jesus. There's nothing about her that we would think to ourselves, Man, this is how a nation of people are going to come to the gospel. And God used them, and through them many came to know the Lord. 
It becomes, in fact, a secondary and underlying theme for the next several chapters is a complete contrast to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the man with the finest background, the most ethical upbringing, the purest religion, it was hard for him to be saved because his trust was in his first birthright and the things of this life. A Samaritan woman, not in spite of her credibility, lack of credibility, but in the midst of it, she gave testimony and her life was so transformed in that instant that her neighbors who wouldn't go to the well with her believed her. The gospel goes out to the Samaritans and eventually to the very ends of the earth and her testimony here in the gospel of John is recorded in perpetuity. You and I don't know her name. We won't name our children after her, but you and I know the story. It is one of the most quoted stories. People are constantly referencing it in terms of like worrying about whether you can judge me and all these other kind of things. But listen, can I tell you what the real power of the story is? Is that she's a nobody from nowhere. Anybody in the room a nobody from nowhere? Brooksville, hello? It's not in her doctrinal orthodoxy. It's not in her social standing or any of those things that we think matters. It's her confidence, her simple confidence in Jesus with the simplicity and the power of her testimony that leads others to come and see. Guys like Nicodemus don't bring a lot to the table. Can I be honest? Guys like Nicodemus are all about promoting themselves. Their YouTube channel is full of them. It's hard to tell whether it's really about Jesus or it's all about them. It is the people who have nothing to lose who typically make the best witness. See, the more you have to lose in this life, the harder it is to embrace eternal life. The more you have stock in this world, the harder it is to buy into the world to come. It didn't make Jesus, didn't make Jesus any less interested in Nicodemus. Jesus did make time for him. He wasn't any less welcome in the kingdom. Please don't hear an anti, uh, like a bias against the stars. Don't hear a bias against people of means. I'm not talking about that. That, that's the, that, that actually kind of completely misses the point altogether. And when churches develop that kind of attitude, like then you're just building walls against the gospel whether we reject the poor or we reject the rich. Whether we, whether we reject the educated or we reject those who are uneducated, that really misses the point. What is significant is that Jesus didn't make a special trip to go find Nicodemus in the middle of nowhere either. He he, he made room for him, but the reality was is that the Nicodemuses of this life aren't the mainstay of how the gospel spreads. The, the mainstay of how the gospel spreads is out in the middle of nowhere 
and then nobody hears the gospel. And she leads a whole village to Jesus. How about you? Do you believe that Jesus can use people with questionable backgrounds from little places out of nowhere? And which would you rather be? Do you want to be a somebody that can't get it out of your own way? Or do you want to be a nobody who leads others to the way? <laughs> right? I think that might preach, you know. If somebody want to help me here, I, you know, I mean, I, I just want to know, are there any nobodies in the house this morning? Anybody here of no account? Anybody here of no reputation? Anybody here that you got nothing to show for... I'm not just wondering, I'm hoping that we have a few nobodies who will share the gospel of Jesus, change a city. I'm hoping that we have a a few nobodies who will share the gospel and not just change a city, but change a county, change a state, change a region, change a nation. How about the person who shared the gospel with you? Was that a nobody or a somebody? And why did you believe the nobody? Let's stand together. Father God, we are so grateful for your kindness and your mercy that is made evident to us. through the ministry of your Spirit, through the kindness of other people who first brought the gospel, the good news to us. And yet, Lord, sometimes we become so enamored with technique, with uh, public solutions. Um, I am mindful that the Old Testament tells us that some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so, Lord, we're asking us, we're asking you that would you fill us today with a a holy boldness that believes uh, that this gospel uh, is a, a tool in the hands of nobodies from nowhere, that we are a people who can be used for the sake of the gospel. It's not in our intelligence It's not in our smoothness of speech. It's not in our ability to articulate things. It's not in our ability to out-argue. Lord, that you would move this from the mental ascent of our minds to deep within our hearts, this confidence that you are at work through the power of your Holy Spirit in us and that we can be the hope to nations. We can be the hope for our friends and family, that we have a testimony about what you've done in us and through us and that that brings life. Not our sophisticated answers. Not our knowing how to dot every I and cross every T, but that you have called us to be a witness of the transforming power of the gospel. And that even from day one, 
just like the Samaritan woman, on day one, we could lead even thousands on day one if we'll simply trust you. We could be the person that long before we have all the answers or even begin to understand what all the questions are, that we could be used powerfully to extend the gospel of hope to our friends, neighbors, even to our enemies. And so, Lord, we ask, would you move upon us and use us powerfully in Jesus' name to bring hope and healing to our friends and family. Today, Lord, as we stand here on Pentecost Sunday, we pray that your power would fall afresh on us Lord, I'm reminded that over and over again, that 39 out of 40 times in the book of Acts, that all of the miracles happened on the street and not in the synagogue, not in the church. That's not where those things happen. That it happens when the people of God go out under, and, and are trusting in you and they extend grace and good news and hope and healing to their neighbors, to their friends yes, even to their enemies, that that's where it happens. And so, Lord, we ask, would you send us out with a great, a holy boldness, with a sense of deep confidence in you? Would you open our hands to pray and our mouths to speak? Would you bend our knees to serve and our spirits to be yielded to your leadership. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so prayer team members, if you go ahead and come on up. And if you have any need for prayer this morning, it could be something as simple as uh, getting prayer for something going on in your life. It could be something more specific as we talked about this morning in terms of the gospel going to your friends and neighbors and family. But I just want to invite you to come get some prayer this morning for whatever needs you have. God bless you. I hope you have an amazing week and that we get to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.